Hello and welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. So today, our very special guest is Dr. Rachel Mann. Jen, tell us a little bit about Dr. Mann. Sure. Rachel teaches at UT Rio Grande Valley. Um, she is one of the creators of the online teaching software called Harmonia, and it will actually grade your part writing for you. So you definitely want to stick around and hear about that. Um, our discussion today covers so many things, um, everything from coding to online teaching to connecting with your students. It's just a great chat that we have with her. Yeah, we had some great discussions with Rachel as to her journey into music theory. I'm sure we all have our own stories along those lines. And then just her relationships with her students, um, her unique situation, and how she came to develop this really, really uh, high-quality software for music theory and music theory pedagogy. There's a lot of first-generation college students here. Um, primarily, most of my students are first-generation college students, so it makes me excited to be part of a, you know, sort of plan for someone that they start college and if they can manage to get through and graduate, they go out and they get a job and they can actually change their entire socioeconomic status. They can go from one status to another just by being able to get a job as a teacher or, you know, be able to go to grad school and go, you know, on and, you know, do different things. And the fact that I get to be part of that is really cool and really exciting and I like it a lot. All right, so we are here with Rachel Mann. We are so pleased uh, for you to join us today. And uh, we thought we would start out with just um, asking you a little bit about your background. You know, how does, how does someone go from an aspiring young musician to you know, a music theory professor, you know, when they could be you know, making delicious dishes, um, posting it on Facebook and making a career with that. But you chose music theory, you know, why, why did you do that? Well, uh... This is funny. Let's see. <laughs> I think what I would say is that I grew up in South Texas on a peanut farm. Uh, my parents were always very concerned that even though I grew up in rural South Texas and even though I grew up on a farm, they wanted us to be exposed to lots of different things. And so we would go to San Antonio and go to the symphony. We would go see shows. We would go to the theater. We would do a lot of different things like that, you know, to try to see like what kind of things we were interested in. And, you know, my brother always wanted to be a farmer. I never did. Uh, I love going back home and being on the farm, but it's not something I wanted to do as a career. And so I was in piano lessons. I was in band. I did all of those things. And, you know, my father was in band growing up and did that all through junior high and high school. My mom didn't do anything like that. Uh, but what I started to realize is that in high school, I got to be really, really good at it and, you know, could go to contests, could win, could do like, you know, better than a lot of people around me. And I really like fell in love with it. It's something I really liked. But being from rural South Texas, and even though I got to go to the symphony and do things like that, I never imagined myself doing that as a career. I always thought I was going to be a band director. And so I ended up going to Texas Tech uh, 
with the idea that I was going to, you know, work on all level music education, um, cause that would make me really marketable and that I was probably going to do band directing, but I might've also done elementary music or something like that, depending on where my life took me. But it wasn't until I really got into my music classes and the academic music classes that I really fell in love with it. And I really liked the whole analytical side of things and diving deep into the history and looking at the context and like looking at all the, you know, analytical details of a piece. And when I would have to go out into the schools and work with horn ensembles and, you know, teach clarinet players how to play F sharp above the break. I was like, I hate this. I don't like this. This is not what I want to do. I really just want to like look into music and like tear it apart and figure out how it works. And so after having a few conversations with some of my early theory teachers, um, I thought, let me give this a go and see what happens. So I applied to a whole bunch of places for my master's degree and I ended up staying at Texas Tech. Um, because they gave me a teaching assistantship and at the time I wasn't really sure if this is what I wanted to do so it was a job and that was important uh, but I fell in love and I've been doing that ever since and so I ended up finishing my master's at Texas Tech I studied a lot of 20th century music and analysis and then ended up going to uh, UT Austin which is also kind of comical because when I got accepted to Texas Tech as a master student I had talked with Edward Pearsall, who used to be at Texas Tech, and he's like, oh, you should come to Tech and like, stay at Tech and study with me, and it's going to be fabulous. And so I got accepted to Tech, and then he left and went to UT Austin. And I was like, I didn't get to study with you. So when I went to UT Austin, I then did study with him then. And the comical part about all of this is that I came from the town of Pearsall, Texas. So like we would have this conversation about, like, that's the name of my town. But... So it was kind of like there's this big, huge, wide world and like it's, it still comes like right to where you came from. And I think that that was always kind of fun. But from UT Austin, I then uh, ended up getting married and I followed my then husband to uh, the University of Illinois. And after living there for a year, I then was able to get a job at the university there. And I was the first music theorist that they had had in their department who'd stayed for more than a year for time in memoriam because they're a big uh composer school and so all of their composers teach music theory they didn't have any music theory faculty per se that stayed more than a year so i did that for five years and then uh because it was a one-year appointment that was just five years long i then ended up at unt for a couple of years and then i had a tenure track position at u albany in upstate new york for a couple of years and then ultimately made it my way back down to south texas again and the thing I love about where I am now is that I can do this thing I absolutely love and adore, but still actually be near family, which a lot of people don't get to do in our field because their jobs are far and few between. So it's nice to have my parents three to four hours away, have my you know uh, nieces and nephews whom I can see grow up, and those things are really fantastic. So sort of long and yeah. windy, but you know, arrived back yeah. at where I started. <laughs> We're all in that boat. None of us are near family. And I know we all, you know, make many long treks home each year to, to visit family. And I thanks for sharing that because I have a really similar kind of journey into music theory. I intended to be music ed. My parents both strongly encouraged college. I was really successful in music as a teenager. And I think we actually, you're a horn player, right? A French yes. horn player? Yeah, so me too. Hey. So we have kind of a similar path to, <laughs> yes, to music theory.
so we kind of wanted to talk with you a little bit about Harmonia. And so that's actually, I think, how I first met you was at a CMS conference and you were sitting at your booth looking kind of lonely. And I was like, oh, I should check this out. And um, which is it's just an amazing program. And I've been able to use it for a number of semesters with my um, remedial graduate uh, students who, who don't pass their entrance exam. And so, um, but kind of talk a little bit about kind of how you got started with online instruction in the first place. Is that something that kind of started in your own graduate work or did that happen after you kind of got into teaching? I wish that it had gotten started in my graduate work because there's so many things I would have done differently had I known that this was the path I was going to take. But uh, when I arrived at the University of Illinois, um, my colleague whose office was right next door to mine, his name is Heinrich Taube, and he's an algorithmic composer and a very good one and has written multiple books on composing with algorithms and that sort of thing. And he had approached me and said, hey, I wrote this this algorithm and it's called Music Theory Workbench. And it's basically an algorithm for uh, like analyzing music theory and looking at corrals and stuff like that. And I think that it would be fabulous and we could learn how to like figure out how to like grade homework. Because for all of my faculty colleagues at the University of Illinois who were composers first and foremost and not theory uh, professors, they didn't want to spend any time grading. And no, I mean, none of us want to spend any time grading. Neither but do we, yeah. <laughs> that was the last thing they wanted to do because they wanted to spend all their time composing. And I, and I understand that. So they were trying to find a way to streamline this. And he's like, can you work with me to see if we could figure out how to make this work? And at first, our conversations started out with like, well, let's just teach our students how to code and then we can do this thing. And I was like, no, no, I'm having trouble teaching my students that the seventh resolves down and the leading tone resolves up. And now you want me to learn, like, teach them how to yeah. code something that's going to test that? No. And so my contribution, I would say, to this entire project was like trying to keep it real and trying to keep it as intuitive and close to what they would do with pencil and paper as possible. And so our very first iteration of this, we called it Corral Composer. We wrote a few in-house grants and basically created a graphic user interface for students. And so they would see a piece of music, very similar to what Harmonia does now, but they would see music and it would either have boxes underneath and they would type in exactly what they would have written on paper. And every single analytical symbol that a student writes looks exactly like what they would write on paper with the exception of the half diminished symbol because we don't have like Scandinavian keyboards with those already in there. So we had to find a way to make that work, but pretty much all the other ones worked fairly well. And so I was like, that's important. But there were also these occasions where my colleague was like, oh, please don't get hit by a bus because if you do, no one knows how to code this thing. Because like, to make every single exercise, you had to code the entire assignment. And we used a proprietary coding language, which was kind of a combination of HTML and music XML sort of mashed together. And there were very few people in the US who knew how to do this. I did it. My colleague did it. And then there were a couple people who learned how to hack it. And interesting enough, one of those people who learned how to hack the code was Paul Dvorak at UNT. And I think that one of the reasons why I probably got a job at UNT is that, you know, he knew what this was and this work that I did and had worked kind of closely with that early software. So it was kind of interesting. But yeah, a lot of the early stuff was like trying to make it 
a graphic interface that was user friendly, that was intuitive as possible, that worked fairly well. And had I known that this is what I was going to be doing, I would have taken like coding classes or learned how to like do some of that stuff. I mean, cause I remember learning how to code in like elementary school and junior high, but it was like Pascal, you know, and basic and some of that stuff. And like really basic, basic, you know, so having to learn how to do HTML and having to learn how to do music XML and then JSON and a few of these other coding languages and things like that's been a steep learning curve. So for sure. One of my questions was going to be, what new skills did you have to learn? But you basically just answered that. And I think the other kind of interesting thing about it is that it, the project for you came out of this collaboration with somebody, you know, you kind of used the things that you both brought to the table to, to create the software that, I mean, because grading part writing is a bear. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible because there's, you know, multiple right answers. That's what makes it a challenging thing to do. So that's really great. Well, and one of the things that, like, I noticed at the University of Illinois and also at, like, UT Austin and UNT, where there's a very intense competitive environment, I would have a lot of students that, like, if I graded or if my TAs graded students' homework and they would compare their answers side by side and they're like, well, this person didn't get this counted off. And I mean, the nice thing about computer graded homework is that everything's counted off. It, it checks everything and nothing ever slips by and you don't have any of those problems anymore. And the, so that suddenly made it a lot easier. This like students would actually like be more concerned about, oh, I missed this rather than trying to see if they could lord over someone else or see how someone else got more points than them, which of course we all know doesn't get anyone anywhere. But, you know, so they actually focused more on what they needed to work on. So Yeah, just piggybacking on that, I definitely love the aspect of getting immediate feedback on any sort of analysis or part writing or even kind of small scale composition just to get some feedback right away because sometimes you have a student in my class for example Tuesday and Thursday at UNT they may not get that assignment back until the following Tuesday because short of grading it on Wednesday you know to get it turned around by Thursday with you know for this fall would be 265 plus students to get that all turned around to them in one day is going to be impossible. And then you can say, well, here we are one week later. Do you remember when you wrote those parallel fists? <laughs> Do you remember when you uh, doubled the wrong thing? on that? that? It kind of passes by, and then you're losing that really great zone of, oh, here's my feedback. Oh, that's what I did. Let me see if I can fix that kind of in real time and that, that process, you know, just that process of, of uh, re-engaging and correcting and making the corrections is so important. Yeah, I definitely think that meeting them when they're actually in the thick of doing it is super important. And when we were first introducing this to our students at Illinois, that's one of the things that they all really, really like. They're like, I'm actually working on this now. I care about it now. In a week and a half when I finally get it back, or even in a month, because some of our TAs took a lot longer to grade things. They're like, you know, we actually care that we are doing this correctly or not. You know, and in our early days of our software, we don't have this feature turned on right now because we're it's still kind of wonky and we're fixing the bugs in it, but we are bringing it back soon. In the old days, if students did a composition exercise, say they were like working on cadences and resolving five sevens to one, 
they could do a cadence in the key of G major, they could make a mistake, then they could re-download it. And when they work on it the second time, it would be like, oh, look at this, now it's in D major or it's in F major, and they could do them in a whole variety of keys. So those things were kind of interesting. That's fantastic, that's fantastic, yeah. And so now like, Harmonia is not just you know a part writing tool anymore. It's kind of become a lot larger and a lot uh, 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 more diverse. And there's a lot uh, a lot more things on it. Can you talk to me about kind of how it went from you know okay this is a tool to help us uh, grade part writing to okay now this is basically a, a curriculum sort resource that you can use for an entire you know, semester or entire uh, multi, multi-semester um, program? I would say in our early days, it was trying to figure out how to take an individual assignment, put it in our software and have students do, you know, a part writing exercise or an analysis exercise. And then once we switched over to make it Harmonia, the learning curve for learning the actual software as a teacher was still really high. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was to create an entire library of materials so that a student, a teacher could just come in and say, okay, I'm going to create a class and I want this, 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 and this, just like you would with any like textbook and workbook package. Like you could say, okay, well, here's my textbook. Now I'm going to open up this workbook and there's all these exercises and I can use them all, or I can use a few of them, or I can use this one and then bring in this one that I really love from over here. And, you know, you could use it in a wide variety of ways, but we could have ready-made materials. And so that was the sort of impetus behind our Harmonia content library. And then the next thing we did was, well, what if you're working, like when I taught at the University of Illinois and also at the University of North Texas, I was teaching to 100 students at a time or more. And so I'm at a large library auditorium or, you know, recital hall i'm on a stage there's a grand piano over here there's a podium way over here and i'm walking back and forth and i'm spending all this time walking and then a student will ask a question well, what about this and it's like well okay i have to leave the computer leave the piano now go to this whiteboard that's way over here and oh none of the markers work and none of the people in the back row can see that and it's like a big pain and so it's like can we make ready-made materials just right here from the software and so that's where our whole process of doing our score generators came from, where it's like, okay, so on the fly, can we create a whole bunch of examples that, you know, students could just pull up and say, okay, like, I want an example of like 1451 in any variety of keys, or I want 16251, you know, or I want something with augmented six chords, or, you know, if you're doing fundamentals, you could say like, I want to build some scales, or I want to do, you know, and there's... A whole variety of things that you can build and we can set the parameters for what those can look like so I can say I want the key signatures to have accidentals up to you know five accidentals or I don't want to have any C major or a minor examples and so I can like toggle all these buttons and I can say I want them to be major keys or minor keys and so then once you start generating material you click a button and it's like automatically there and then from there you decide what you want to do with it so we also created an ability to, from inside the app, to say, I want to turn this into a composition exercise. I want to turn it into a figured base exercise. I want it to be a uh, analysis exercise. And you can 
you know, toggle that all from inside the app rather than having to code. Because the other thing that I was very adamant about was like, so we have this app, it works really well for our students. They have a really nice graphic user interface. Everything's intuitive, but this program is going to go nowhere unless people know how to code. And the average music theorist does not go to college to learn how to code. So, you know, with the exception of the very few, and there are some out there, and I've talked with almost all of them. Uh, I've met all of them. It's a small world. It truly is. We are a small world, you know. And I'm a girl, so they always find it shocking that that I'm in this world. But uh, that's a whole other conversation for another day. Uh, But... But when I would meet people, I mean, it's like, this program looks really cool, but I have no idea how to use it. So it's like, how do we make a graphic interface for the teacher side of things too? And so that was the main platform from taking Corral Composer and turning it into Harmonia. The main thing for Harmonia was the fact that it's a teacher side and a student side, whereas Corral Composer was student side only. I have one question to add on to that if you're open to answering. One of the things that I've liked to do in class more now than I used to do is recompositions. So taking some examples, and a lot of times now taking examples that are outside the canon, trying to be more inclusive, and recomposing them and saying like, okay, well here's here's the opening to this Bruno Mars uh, song. What would it sound like if it was this? What would it sound like if it was this? And I have found it so... Uh, enriching to give the students kind of some feedback on the recompositions but then as you say when you have when you have 150 people in a room at one time I can't sit there and play 150 recompositions even though I really value that activity I think it would be great to get some of that kind of uh, composition on the software and it sounds like it is possible to do that uh, with what you guys have. So there are a couple of things that Harmonia can do um, that some people know about and some people don't, but one of the things you can do is you can upload music XML. And so any music XML example you have, you can upload it in the software and then you can see what Harmonia does with it. Sometimes it blows up because your XML needs to be clean and it needs to be very specific and we have guidelines on our website on how to do that because you can't have like voices that just drop out. They need to like right. continue with rests and things like that so it knows what to look at. Um, but you can also do what we call roll your own analysis so you can put things in and then add your own analysis and then students have to uh, write exactly that if they were analyzing it. We are currently working and hope to have it by spring. We were hoping to have it by fall and it's not going to happen because we've been busy (laughs) doing this uh, with the pandemic and everything. But uh, we are hoping that like when teachers would write in their role your own analysis that the computer actually will learn it. And so like is working with a little bit of AI and that kind of stuff. And so can it actually get to the point where students can actually compose because they can analyze stuff, but can we create composition exercises with the stuff that teachers are writing in? Um, But the other thing we have in our software, and this harkens back to when we were Corral Composer, the main platform of Corral Composer is that it came with all of the 371 bot corrals in the software. And that's still, is a feature of Harmonia. You just don't know where to look for it. But all the bot corrals are in the software and they're all in as XML. It's like the computer doesn't have the analysis attached to them. It just puts them, like the minute you load it onto a page, then it analyzes it. But the cool thing is you can change any of those pitches. So like I can look at the very first bot corral, the, um, the, oh, what's it called? The, the 
Was Hertz and mine is Gurinda? I can't remember. It's one of the first ones. Oh, I should know it by heart. I see it like I used to see it every day. But uh, when we put in the very first chorale, like the first chord is a one chord, as most Bach chorales are. The second chord is a one, is a four six. And I often will ask my students, well, why did he go to four six? Why didn't he just go to four? Right? I mean, and so if you just take the pitch and move it to where it would be a four chord, then it comes up with an annotation. You click on the annotation and it tells them they have an augmented interval. And it's like, well, that's why Bach went to four six. I mean, so you can actually move those things around and see like what kind of annotations are there. You can also scroll through all the Bach corrals and see all the things that, you know, Bach doesn't follow because he has lots of augmented intervals and lots of voice overlaps. And we've tried to go through and color code all of those errors you know, according to how often they appear in that canon of Bach chorales. You know, because some things are obviously, you know, you never see. Like, you never see parallel fits. You never see parallel octaves. You don't see, you know, certain types of things. But then, like, leading tones and seventh chords, I mean, seventh's not resolving correctly. Those you see, but not as often. And then, you know, voice overlaps and stuff like that you see all the time. So... We have like color coding so people can see it, but you can move all the notes around. You can recompose Bach all you want. And you can see how, you know, just by moving certain pitches, it changes and marks annotations and shows you like how you're a lesser composer than Bach as you start to make more and more errors, you know, so it's kind of fun. Yeah, that's Aren't super fun. All? I love that. <laughs> love it. So I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about where you teach because it's a unique setting, I think, both in the kinds of students that you teach and also because the school used to be kind of like two separate schools, right? And now it's one. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I teach at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. and We are the newest school in the University of Texas system. Uh, we are a combined campus of two legacy institutions. We were University of Texas Pan American in Edinburgh and also UT Brownsville, uh, obviously here in Brownsville. They mashed the two universities together and gave us a medical school in Harlingen. So we had grown by leaps and bounds. We are a huge university. And I think that we are very truly a regional university. Um, you know, a lot of places say they're UT Austin or UT San Antonio or UT Dallas or, you know, and they're a specific place but we are like from the Rio we're from Rio Grande City all the way to South Padre Island and Boca Chica Beach we have you know space a facility right next to SpaceX we have uh facilities on the island for you know marine research and then we have you know everything in between so we do a lot of different things and it's kind of a fun sort of place to, you know, see the type of research that happens here. Um, I think in terms of like probably other things, uh, you sent me a list of questions of things to talk about. So one of the things that's also interesting about teaching here is that it is the southernmost point in Texas. So we are on the Texas-Mexico border. Um, many of my students are from this area in the Rio Grande Valley and the four county area that makes up the Rio Grande Valley. But I also have many students who are actually Mexican citizens and drive across the bridge every day for class. Um, 
without getting into politics, that's becoming more and more difficult for them to do. I will have students who will call me on the phone at 6.30 in the morning and say, or send me an email at 6.30 in the morning saying, Dr. Mann, I don't think I'm going to make it to class today. And they take a picture of the bridge and it's 400 miles long. And they're like, I, I don't know if I'll be here by eight. And, you know, that part is kind of disheartening. But I also know that with this pandemic happening and the fact that I'll be able to record all my lectures and things like that, it's something I might even try to continue into the future too for students who may or may not, may or may not be able to get across just because of some unrest that's happening on the border that day. And so right. that's something that, you know, I'm now mindful of and I'm like trying to come up with ways to sort of think about. But I think this is a very poor and economically depressed area. So I think having a very large regional university that's tied to a university system, which is very big and has a lot of money is really good for this community. And there are a lot of very, there's a lot of first generation college students here. Um, primarily most of my students are first generation college students. So it makes me excited to be part of a, you know, sort of plan for someone that they start college and if they can manage to get through and graduate, they go out and they get a job and they can actually change their entire socioeconomic status. They can go from one status to another just by being able to get a job as a teacher or, you know, be able to go to grad school and go, you know, on and, you know, do different things. And the fact that I get to be part of that is really cool and really exciting and I like it a lot. That's really fulfilling, yeah. And you're trying to do your part, it sounds like, to overcome some of the obstacles that the the politics will inevitably put in front of all of us, uh, you know, but particularly in your situation. It's so, that's beautiful that you're overcoming that in your own way. What I will also say is that I have this sort of unique position. And I don't, I don't know, it's not really that I'm unique, because, I mean, a lot of people in this day and age have taught at many universities before landing, you know, at any particular place where they are, but I have a lot of students that come in and they are absolute monsters on their instruments. They are amazing. We have extremely good musicianship happening here in the Rio Grande Valley. And that's evidenced by the fact that when you see who's going and performing at TMEA as the honor bands or as the honor choirs or things like that, so many of them are coming from the Rio Grande Valley. And we have hundreds, not tens, hundreds of students who are performing as part of the all-state ensembles every year, you know, for TMEA. And so the quality of musicianship here is just, it's astounding to me when I see the students who are, you know, coming through our classes and hearing them perform. They're really, really good. But even still, just based on being in this area and where they've come from and you know, the interactions they've had with people in the past, I feel like most of my job is being a cheerleader. It's like, yeah, I teach you music theory. And yes, I do this. But most of my time is spent like saying, no, no, you really actually do know this. And you're not any different from anyone else I've taught anywhere else in the country. Like I've taught at the University of Illinois. I've taught at the University of North Texas. I've taught at UT Austin. I've taught in upstate New York. I've taught in all of these different places. You are learning the exact same material that I teach everywhere. I don't really change my curriculum. I do not dumb anything down for anyone. Everyone is learning the same things. I mean, I change the pieces because, I mean, you get bored and you want to add new things. And I'm trying to add more music by people of color and from different places and from the places where my students are from. But it's like 
you can do this just like everyone else, you know, just because you haven't had all the opportunities or because, you know, politics and all sorts of things have left you behind for so long, you are still worthy and you still deserve this and you're still really good and you're going to go off and do great things, you know. So I feel like most of my job is just that, like, you're good, you're great, you know, and being a yeah. cheerleader, so. Do you think... Um, uh showing more examples by you know composers of color and different genders is especially significant for your students i was looking a little bit on the the breakdown of of um utrgv and things like 90 percent hispanic um as far as the the population of the students and you know you think about a normal theory class and a, a theory textbook um uh, it's almost all white, right? And perhaps one of the reasons why students of color um, who don't fit that box might need more cheerleading because they're like, is this really for me? Do I really fit here? And it seems like you're, you're addressing that. Yes. And, you know, obviously I'm trying to do what I can. I don't do enough. I could do more. Everyone can do more, you know, and I sometimes, well, a lot of times I berate myself for not doing enough, but I'm also not berate. I mean, I'm berating myself for not doing enough with technology. Like there's, it's never enough, but I have like a couple of instances where I think it is telling. Um, when I teach my freshmen, like one in five, and we're learning about the concept of tonic and dominant and how that works, you know, and we're doing our very first exercises with uh, uh, harmony, harmony, you know, harmonizations instead of melody harmonization. Sorry, that my brain is gone today. When I'm doing that activity, I often bring in some like folk tunes and this and that. And then I bring in these mariachi tunes, right? Because I'm like, mariachi is like all one in five, right? So I bring in these tunes and we, you know, harmonize them and we do all this stuff, right? And then it's like, they're like, oh, can we sing? I'm like, yeah, let's sing. And they're like, do we have to sing it so fashion? I'm like, no, we can just sing it, right? So then it turns into this fight in class about who's more Mexican than the next person sitting next to them because some people know all the words and some people don't. And the part that really becomes comical to me then is when they look at me and go, oh my God, she knows the words. How does she know the words? You know, and then they look at me yeah. as like this complete, I mean, I've told them I'm from South Texas. They know my mother was born here in Brownsville. And then I'm like, I try very hard to tell them I'm like, just like them, but I don't think they really believe it. And then when I start singing, you know, like Cielita Lindo with them in Spanish and they're like, huh? You know, she's singing Mañanitas. What is she doing? You know? And it's like, I can, I'm from the same place you are from, you know? So it, it becomes kind of funny. And then it's like, they invite me into their community. And I think that that's important. And I think they also recognize then and there that I value their music and, you know, it's my music too. I mean, I grew, I mean, I know these songs because I listen to these things too. I mean, I grew up in South Texas. And I think the other part uh, that was telling for me was I was working with a graduate student at the University of Illinois, even this past year, even though I've been gone for many, many years, uh, one of my former grad students went off, uh, she was a bassoon player, she went off, got a job uh, at working with the symphony and at the university in Monterrey, Mexico. And she decided to come back and finish her degree. So she was like, hey, I worked with you many, many years ago, would you still mind being on my dissertation committee? So I was like, sure, why not? So her dissertation involved uh, like learning a whole bunch of new music by living composers uh, in Mexico for bassoon, solo bassoon, 
And so I was playing a couple of these pieces for my students and they were like, oh, that's kind of cool. And some of them think it's weird because I mean, not all of them love new music. <laughs> I'm like, I love this stuff. But, you know, a lot of them are like, oh, that's interesting. Right. And so they're like, who is that by? And I just think they assumed it was going to be some European white male composer. And when I tell them, oh, this is by Mario La Vista or this is by this person, this is by, and they were like, who's that? And I tell them where they're from and that they're Mexican composers. And they're just like, they're like in shock. And it's like, they can't imagine that someone like them is, you know, writing music that, you know, sounds like it could come out of Darmstadt or something, you know, and it's like, I think that, you know, it's kind of good for us to, you know, say, hey, there are people just like you composing really high level, really great music that people want to listen to, that people want to perform, that people want to play. And it's not just this little exclusive club that you're not allowed to join, you know, that you can yep. be part of this too. And I, you know, can I do more? Yes, I can definitely do more. Am I going to try to do more? Yes. But, you know, it's also hard. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that's keeping us, that keeps a lot of us from it. It's not that we don't believe in this idea. It's just, it's really hard to do. It takes time and we're all seeking time all the time. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm always running out. So yeah, no, it takes time. But I think, you know, doing something is what's important, right? So Yeah, that's part of the reason why we started having these conversations is because we wanted to kind of expand our collective knowledge and ask each person to weigh in. Like you have that that area and that region that you're such, uh, you have this proficiency in that, you know, I, I wish I had, but I don't. And uh, just to kind of talk to you about it, it's even just opening up my eyes even more than I, than I had been before. So thanks for, for sharing that. We unfortunately are coming to the end of our time, speaking of running out of time. Um, but before we, we let you go, we have just a couple, or actually three little, um, we have a speed round, three little questions, all right? These are questions um, you've never seen. They're locked in a secure laptop. No one has seen these questions. Um, and so I'm gonna give, give you the first one. So this is just a short little answer. You do not have to explain your answer at all. Just just what, whatever comes to your mind, you can answer. So the first question is 164 or 564? 564. Five, four. <laughs> <laughs> but, but. In Harmonia, uh, we are very agnostic and we give you a choice. <laughs> I actually appreciate go. that because right. I've, I have grad students who come in who with 164 and I mean, it takes some, it takes like three weeks for them to even to figure out what a 564 means because they're so ingrained to think yeah. of the 164 in a certain way. So I appreciate that agnosticism. Whether or not you think about it this way or whether or not you think about it this way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> All right, I'll go. go for it, so on your phone right now, what is the song? that is played the most, that has nothing to do with work or research, just the song that's your go-to right now. I've been listening to this song called Malamente by Rosalia, and I discovered it because I watched these food podcasts with Jose Andres, and they've been like trying to make dinners at home, you know, to keep people at home, and they all try to time them to these short songs. And so, of course, him being from Spain, they're always listening to Spanish music, and I'm like, oh, I like that, because she does this, uh, uh, like it's rock music, but it's also got a lot of flamenco influence in it. I think it's pretty cool. Oh, cool. Very nice. That's really cool. Then you're up. I forget my question, but I think it was, was it minor do versus minor la? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Is that your question? I love that question. Can I ask that, Paul? 
Sickle. Yeah, I mean, there, there are no rules in speed round, so. <laughs> All right, I would say I am a dough-based minor kind of girl, but I think there are times and places where law makes a lot more sense, and so I'll show something to my students, and I'm like, well, let's try it this way, and I was like, oh, which one was easier? And they're like, this one. Well, then there you go, so. No, I totally agree with that. There, there are yeah. really good places and advantages to the law-based law based minor, no doubt, no doubt. Okay. I mean, I think if you're... Uh, if you're modulating, you know, among relative keys, I think it's it's beautiful. So, yeah, and I yeah. learned with law base minor actually as an undergrad. So, you know, yeah, and serves you well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. Can you just give us maybe just a little bit about maybe what you're working on now, and maybe how people can find you if uh, if they want to learn more about what you're doing. Uh, right now, I am working on uh, making video support for uh, Harmonia, so you can find us at www.harmonia.iliacsoftware.com, and if you click on any of the video support pages, you won't see my shining face, but you'll hear my lovely voice, uh, so... <laughs> If you miss me, that's how you can hear me. Uh, and aside from that, the other big research project I am working on is I am also a Roberto Gerard scholar. Uh, he's the only Iberian Spanish Catalan composer who studied with Arnold Schoenberg. And uh, I study specifically his serial and 12 tone music. And so I'm in the middle of working on a book proposal uh, to write a book on. Gerard with a colleague of mine in England. So uh, hopefully that will be, ex you know, accepted and people will find it and you will be able to find it in a bookstore near you. So yeah, we'll see. Fingers crossed. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We'll be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.